Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this uh, conference this afternoon. We're delighted that so many of you have been able to join us, and as you may sense, uh, there's been a lot of interest in the conference, a lot of demand for tickets. Indeed, we have people waiting outside. I know a number of you have traveled some considerable distance uh, to be here, so we're delighted to uh, be welcoming you. And I'm very pleased that this afternoon's event is a joint initiative. It is being hosted by both the Hellenic Observatory here at the school and the Contemporary Turkish Studies program here at the school as well. And of course, this afternoon's agenda lends itself very well to that kind of collaboration. I should say, of course, that the London School of Economics, it will not be a surprise, uh, takes no political position. Similarly, the Hellenic Observatory and the Contemporary Turkish Studies Programme has no political uh, stance. We are, however, very interested in listening to people with something interesting to say. And I think this afternoon we amply justify that criterion. Of course, our interest here at the LSE is very much with the academic understanding, the academic analysis, and to appreciate the way in which the policy agenda may be uh, evolving. It is surely commonplace to say that uh, the division of the island of Cyprus over the last four decades has been a living tragedy involving much pain for, with different kinds of consequences for different people. It has seemed that Cyprus for so long has been trapped or locked in to a division and to a mindset that goes with that, unable to break out and realize some of the hopes proposals, initiatives which have been taken successively on the island over the years. In this context, what is happening today with uh, Famagusta uh, is, of course, especially important, encouraging, indeed uh, refreshing. To end the ghost town status uh, of Borussia um, is, of course, especially timely and encouraging. It would represent a huge political step forward. And we have a multiplicity of initiatives underway as we speak, affecting Thumbagusta. We have, therefore, much to learn uh, about today. Uh, there is much potential to consider. Thumbagusta is an eco-city, a boost for tourism, a boost for economic growth, and of course, as I say, a hugely symbolic step forward, perhaps for reconciliation between the communities as well. So my task by way of introduction is merely to welcome you, uh, to remind you to switch off your mobile phones, uh, to make sure that everyone is seated, ready for the serious part of the proceedings, before handing over, however, can I just uh, take this opportunity of uh, thanking those who've been involved in the organization and the arrangements uh, for the conference. As you can imagine, a conference of this kind, this number of speakers, 
uh, does take a lot of uh, effort and a lot of uh, time. So on your behalf, I'd like to thank uh, my colleagues, uh, Polly, Ismini, Umit, Tenor, and many of our students' uh, assistants as well. One matter of arrangements I should emphasize is that this afternoon's proceedings are being recorded, both as an audio and as a video recording. There will be plenty of time for questions and answers uh, with the various panels. If at that stage that you have a question to ask, but you would like to be immodest and not um, video recorded, then please say so at the beginning of your question and we can um, avoid you being appearing on the screen. But please do bear in mind that the proceedings are otherwise being recorded. So I've given my thanks uh, to those helping with the organisation, but there is a last thank you I would like to give, and indeed congratulations in advance of this uh, programme, and that is to the conference organiser, my colleague uh, Rebecca Bryant, whose initiative this has been, and she has, I think, uh, put together a tremendously uh, good programme for us this afternoon uh, with diversity of speakers and, as I say, many people travelling some considerable distance uh, to be here. So, as I hand over, could I ask you to join me in thanking both those colleagues involved in the organisational arrangements for this afternoon, but also to welcome the conference organiser, my colleague Rebecca Bryant. Well, as uh, Kevin said, thank you. So, thank you very much for being here. You, I should say, are some of the lucky ones since we had at least half as this. Uh, uh, half as many more people who wanted to uh, attend and, and could not because we didn't have space because the LSE, of course, has these uh, pesky things like fire codes that don't allow us to have more people. Um, <clears throat> now, this conference uh, is a bit different from the usual academic conference, I think. Um, it's different because, uh, apart from, of course, the, the mix of speakers that we have, uh, this is a conference that also asks us to dream. Uh, it asks us to imagine. <clears throat> it asks us to ask, what if? Uh, what if Varosha were open to its former inhabitants and Famagusta open to the world? What if the legal owners of properties in Varosha returned? What if the walled city of Famagusta received the attention it deserves as an important site of cultural heritage for the Eastern Mediterranean? What if the entire Famagusta area were revitalized and returned to its former status as one of the most attractive tourist areas in the world? What if Turkish Cypriots and Greek Cypriots were able to work together for the economic revitalization of the whole island? Now, the conference, the idea for the conference actually came about um, with the recent, uh, with the, the Bicommunal Famagusta Initiative's recent announcement of a, a poll that they had taken amongst uh, Turkish Cypriot residents of Famagusta that showed that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Mustafa, but I, I believe it was around 80% of, the, of um, those residents uh, wanted to see 
um, Varosha returned to, to its legal owners and wanted to see the various change, many of the various changes that we'll be discussing today. And um, uh, one of our panels, one of our uh, speeches in the afternoon, will will discuss that. Uh, of course, many people living in, in, in Famagusta are tired of um, the everyday landscape of their lives being dominated by a ghost town, and uh, tired of seeing watching as what was once a fame beach uh, resort decays into the sand. Holding a town hostage is an an expensive proposition, and many speculate that a revived Famagusta may hold the key to the economic revitalization of the island as a whole. Groups such as the Famagusta Initiative also hope that the city may provide a model for how Cypriots can work together in the interests of a common future. Now, I had heard for some time that there were discussions, plans, and projects going on uh, regarding the future of Famagusta. <clears throat> but it, it was only when I began organizing this conference that I realized how many different groups and projects there really are and how extensive the planning is. As a result, we, you may have noticed that we have quite a full program. Um, and uh, like you, I'm looking forward to learning today about the research and planning work that's already being done and about uh, what still is needed. This is an opportunity for us to learn, to think together, and to dream. And one reason that Famagusta has captured the imaginations of many people is because it gives us the opportunity to imagine building something anew, uh, building something together. It gives us the opportunity to consider together what we want a joint future to look like, and therefore it gives hope. Now, in asking us to dream in this way, this conference also asks us to hold in abeyance our objections about what we'll have to give and what we'll have to politically compromise. So this conference is not about the politics of Famagusta. And I want to emphasize that because uh, we, I think, don't need to repeat here many of the tired, tired political arguments that we often hear at uh, conferences on Cyprus. Um, And I'd ask you to leave those behind and to enter this space with those arguments suspended and instead to think about and talk about the various plans and proposals that we're going to hear today. Now, this then is a space for for asking what if, and it's a space in which we want to have a serious discussion that is also an act of imagination and an act oriented towards the future. Of course, that what-if includes thinking about both the possibilities and the responsibilities that will arise from any opening. What are our responsibilities to each other and to the future? What are the potential social and ecological consequences of such an opening? As I believe you'll see, um, we've we've tried to organize uh, the panels in such a way that you'll, you'll get a general sense of many of the various plans that are being made. The first panel concentrates a bit more on issues of town planning and economy. The second panel focuses somewhat more on, uh, on let's say, social issues, potential social issues around um, any kind of, of opening of Arosha. Um, and, but I, want, do, I do want to emphasize here that one of the things that we try to do in, in in organizing the conference was also, despite the title, um, to, to take the, the discussion out of a simple discussion around Varosha 
and to bring in um, many more of the uh, to bring in efforts that are, that are ongoing now to think about the uh, type of future that we want to imagine uh, when, when or if um, Famagusta is, uh, is once again a bicommunal city. Now, uh, I don't want to take any more time because we do have a full program. I want to say that we will have about 45 minutes at the end of the first panel for questions. Um, the second panel... We has ended up uh, having a, an extra paper added to it, and therefore we've had some time taken away from the discussion. Uh, in order to make up for that, what we will do is I'll basically forego most, any kind of extensive closing remarks, um, and we allow us to have, continue discussion into, into that uh, period. The, but we do need to keep rather strictly to time, so I have to ask the, the presenters please to forgive us for being rather strict about, about the time constraints um, because we, we do want to allow the, the many people who I'm sure will have um, comments and questions and, and points for discussion to be able to raise those because we do want to make this not simply a, a presentation but also a, a discussion of, of various views. So... Um, Please, well, th please uh, join me in welcoming the, the first panel of speakers, and um, thank you again for your participation today. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Um, let me introduce you to this, the first panel of the afternoon. Um, as Rebecca mentioned, we've got rather a full program, so I won't take... Um, very long to introduce it. Um, what I'll do is I'll just introduce each speaker as they, they take their turn. They will have 15 minutes, and as was pointed out, um, we will have about 45 minutes for questions at the end. So um, if you do have any questions, comments, could you just hold off until then? Um, the title of this session is Envisioning the Future. Um, the first speaker we have is George C. Lordos, uh, an economist and businessman, um, member of the Famagusta Initiative and the Famagusta EcoCity Project. Um, he's presenting a paper which is co-authored with uh, Nectarius Christodoulou from the University of Cyprus, um, and it's entitled Famagusta Incorporated uh, Massively Inclusive Grassroots Collaboration in Urban Revitalization. Thank you. Thank you, James. Okay. Famagusta, 1973. 1973, a year before the disaster. People buying Iran from the street vendor had no idea what was coming. Neither the people dancing the night away in Labyrinthos, in Varosha, or the young families outside the King George Hotel. So now the question is, how does one bring six square kilometers back to life for Varosha? For the walled city, how do we save endangered treasures, cultural treasures, heritage of many civilizations? How do we reunite a divided city? We have a big challenge ahead of us in this respect. Nature isn't waiting for us. The walled city and greater Famagusta are in a better shape, of course, than Varosha, much better. But they are not where they could be relative to the rest of Cyprus. Could have a much better future. Now, it used to be that the impulse, not necessarily intended, was that Famagusta might remain a divided city. The emergency action plan of the Greek Cypriot Council for Reconstruction and Resettlement only considered Varosha. Greek Cypriot uh, parametric urbanism competition with uh, university students participating, only Varosha, 
and the Turkish Cypriot local authorities are only are assuming that Varosha is a closed military zone and they're only moving forward with the rest of Famagusta. But increasingly, thankfully, this impulse is being resisted through a number of bicommunal initiatives. So we've had the bicommunal Famagusta revival project six years ago, funded by USAID, which covered the entire Famagusta area. The preliminary urban development study for Famagusta, which is funded by the Council for Reconstruction and Resettlement, a Greek Cypriot, uh, if you like, initiative. Uh, again, it's bicommunal and entire Famagusta area. The bicommunal Famagusta initiative vision, and I've got it in yellow because I'll be telling you a lot more about it today as a member of, of that initiative, uh, also covers the entire Famagusta area. And finally, the Famagusta Ecocity project, uh, five different teams of uh, students, Greek Cypriot students, Turkish Cypriot, American students, they are also looking at the entire Famagusta urban area. And the Famagusta Ecocity project what is relevant with the massively inclusive uh, process here is that we've, they were briefed by nine different discussion panels. One of those discussion panels was our bicommunal Famagusta initiative vision for Famagusta that I'm about to, to show you next. There were other panels on economics, on history, on peace building, coastal engineering. Three days, uh, nine, nine hours worth of discussion. So what is this vision of the Bicommunal Famagusta Initiative? It it's, uh, starts from the question, if uh, Varosha is returned, if Famagusta is reunited, is there a vision, is there planning for what comes next? If there is not, we will face a vacuum that will lead to a bad result. So this is not meant to be uh, a prescription. It's meant to inspire a dialogue. It's meant to inspire dreaming and hoping. What did we uh, arrive at as our goal? Goal should be, in our vision, a city of tomorrow, a model of peaceful coexistence and the magnet for creative youth and young families. And this is not to say that uh, the 55-year-olds who are missing from Augusta sorely are, are not welcome there. Of course, this is, uh, we, the grandchildren need grandparents with them, don't they? <laughs> so it takes uh, a 50-year leap to, for a city of tomorrow because time stopped for Varosha in 74. If we only catch up for 40 years worth, it will not be a competitive city uh, given the development of the rest of Cyprus. So we're looking for a, a, a city where new generations, younger generations would want to live there and the model of peaceful coexistence and cooperation. There are great challenges and great opportunities involved in that. If we're targeting an effective reunification of the entire city, this will have to come through synergies, through cooperation, through partnership and coexistence, so that the visitor and the resident can enjoy one great city. And we'd have to think of education, of tourism, trade, productive countryside, an ecological and technological city, the port, and the coexistence of distinct civilizations. This doesn't come free. It will cost billions to, do, you know, to, to turn these visions and dreams into reality in infrastructure, in public services, in private property, and in restorations in the world city. These billions would not appear as handouts, not in this day and age, for sure. Maybe not in any day and age. These funds for, to materialize, the investors must be assured that the investments will bring an economic return. These investors, it's not a dirty word, we're not talking about private investors only. 
It also means public sector investors. It also means European Union. How will that happen? If there is a credible plan for a city of tomorrow, a plan providing for state-of-the-art infrastructure for Famagusta, upon that infrastructure, we, an economy that will guarantee returns will appear. Then, and only then, the investments will appear in the first place. The investors will be looking for a prospect of success to believe this. This will start from the credible plan, which must be a joint effort from both communities of Famagusta. And this plan will then lead to the thriving economy of the city, and the economy will bring the return on this investment. This return will start to strengthen the feeling and the belief that Famagusta is being successfully revived. And then, as a result, the, the plan, as such as it is or such as it will be, will uh, receive more backing, more support, more co-ownership from Famagustians, and, uh, and, and more commitment from political leaders. Now, there are two essential preconditions to this. The first one is that the eventual territorial adjustment um, upon a solution should be, in, as we call it, investor-friendly. What we mean by that is you can't invest billions in a legal twilight zone. It has to be the status of the territory that is returned has to be such that investments are possible. So this means the acquis communautaire must apply in that area. And it means that the area must not be just Barosha, which is only one-eighth, the enclaved part of Barosha, which is only one-eighth of the pre-74 municipal boundaries of Famagusta. It needs to be the enclave city and the hinterland, so that you can develop all the other economic sectors, as well as the tourism on the beachfront. And that was the first precondition. The second precondition to getting a credible plan going is the win-win-win formula of uh, integrating the walled city, Varosha, and the greater Famagusta area, the suburbs to the north. None of them alone can make it in this competitive day and age and starting from so far behind. We would need Varosha as the tourist magnet in Mecca with the six kilometers of sandy beach to be linked as one with the treasures of the world city with the treasures of the Salamis area. And likewise, the students in the Eastern Mediterranean University, we would want them to come and enjoy the world city. We want them to come and enjoy the beaches of Barosha. And so we can get an economy going, which is not just about tourism and is not just about uh, culture and archaeology, but it's about everything. We'll see a bit more about that later on. So a complete and credible plan, as we said, is needed. I'm not going to go through all of them now because we'll be going through them as I go through the presentation. But a complete plan would need to think about the beachfront, about the historic city centers of the walled city and of Barosha, about the road network and transportation and public transportation that is fit for a city of tomorrow. It needs to be a magnet for young people. So that means ecology, technology, entertainment. We need, above all, a thriving economy and bicommunal cooperation. The economy will pay for everything, and without the bicommunal cooperation, it just cannot happen. So starting from the beachfront part of the vision, if you like, um, eventually, in some way, we will need new modern buildings on the beachfront. Can't just do it with the existing buildings that we have. So this has to happen somehow. But I'm not going to go into details. This is just vision at the moment. The beach of Famagusta is the treasured asset, not only in Varosha, but also further north. It must be 
opened up, it must be showcased, it must be extended, it must be uh, cleaned, it must, be, it must have a, a pedestrian walkway going from all the way from Ayos Memnonas to the south to Salamina to the north, and passing over and next to the walls of the walled city so that the tourists can, uh, can access the whole city. We need recreation and leisure and access on the beach. This is the treasure. We need to use it. Now, how do we get these new modern buildings and uh, all these beach uh, changes and so on? You need to respect the legal owners. Otherwise, you will get so much political infighting that nothing will happen. But on the other hand, you need to get results. So there need to be incentives and deadlines. To, uh, and deadlines for taking advantage of incentives so that uh, the owners can freely decide to take advantage of incentives and align themselves with the plan that has been decided for the city by the citizens. And then with free decisions, they will, and guided by the comprehensive plan, we will get a new city and a new beachfront open for business at some point in the hopefully not too distant future. future. Turning now to the world city, and the historic city centers. The world city needs to uh, attain the UNESCO World Heritage Monument status to attract investment for revitalization. The treasures in there, there are so many of them. I'm just highlighting a few of them. St. George of the Greeks, Ravelin Bastion, St. Nicholas Church, and uh, Lala Mustafa Jumi. Othello Tower, Porta del Mare, Seagate. It's endless. They say that there, are 300, there used to be 365 churches in the world city, one for every day of the year. The old town center of Arosha is also historic to the Greek Cypriot Famagustians. Um, there are many landmarks there which uh, are the, the urban memory and the connection of these people to the city. This must be respected and protected and preserved, and the roads and the neighborhoods must be restored. <coughs> Building regulations need to be modernized for earthquake resistance because we don't want the fate of Salamina to befall Famagusta, do we? We want parks, green areas, public spaces, pedestrian zones, a city that is friendly to pedestrians and not a magnet for cars. We need it to be a magnet for people. We want bicycle and pedestrian lanes and trams so that uh, young families that we want to attract to live in Famagusta can decide that they can do without a car. And this is another reason for wanting to live in Famagusta. We want to think big and think ahead for uh, you know, a future from Augusta Metropolis. It will need to be planned now, the road network, the transportation network, the tram lines in the middle of the, in the central arteries of the highways or the, or the main thoroughfares, not highways. Last mile to home is crucial. If we plan that carefully, and there are so many options, like uh, small agile buses or uh, bicycles, sidewalks, and uh, you know, multiple options. That's the key, I guess, to getting a city that is friendly to pedestrians, to bicycles, and that is largely free, free of cars. The buildings, the built environment, if we can achieve, with the opportunity of rebuilding Barosha, to have as near zero as possible, zero energy buildings, that's another attraction for, uh, not only for residents, but for tourists as well that we're living the principles of the 21st century. That's where the Famagusta Ecocity project is so crucial and comes into with the, the ideology here. Entertainment and schooling. If we, if we are engineers and solving the problem of attracting young families, what do they want? They also want entertainment and schooling options for their children, unrivaled entertainment and schooling options. 
we need to think ahead for these things and how will they appear and materialize. Technology. Who would, uh, wouldn't like free Wi-Fi everywhere in the city? <laughs> or uh, you know, what we have here in London of uh, an iPhone app which will tell you if the bus is coming now or in 10 minutes, so you know whether it's worth waiting or walking. Now, turning to the economy, um, it should be centered on tourism, high-end and cultural tourism, but it cannot be dependent on tourism because that leads to seasonality and it leads to a city that will never take off. We need other sectors, maybe medical tourism, maybe small-scale agriculture, higher education. There's already a great start with the Eastern Mediterranean University in the northern part. We need to expand on that. The new urban technologies that we will use in Famagusta to make it the city of tomorrow, we can then resell them. We can make our Famagusta Valley, if you like, you know, with these technologies. Commerce and services and, and small-scale agriculture. Now, None of this will happen without the bicommunal cooperation. So three key things, joint rebuilding, joint steering committee of the municipalities, and unified transportation systems for the region. The municipal boundaries of 74 could be extended to include the treasures of Salamis, Engomi, and Apostoles Varnavas. And in this way, the access to those treasures will be seamless and easy for the visitor. Furthermore, it's not only the walled city that needs to be protected. These other treasures as well of Salamis, Engomi, and Apostolos Varnavas. Salamis and Engomi were the ancestors of modern-day Famagusta, after all. Turning to the port is another uh, dimension of uh, important bicommunal cooperation. Um, the port should support the redevelopment of Varosha. It's a key source for uh, materials that will be needed. But then subsequently, it needs to be rethought and redeveloped. The port could become part marina and part passenger cruise terminal. So imagine you know, a beautiful landscape marina fitting into the existing landscape um, and easily accessible to the residents and to the tourists. And uh, cruise ships with the passengers alighting right next to the walled city. This is part of the economic vision of, uh, of, of bringing life back to the entire city. So what's our vision? It's for a greater Famagusta, which can be a single economic living organism for the benefit of all its residents, of all its citizens. All the history, the beaches, the commerce and the tourism, services and education, property, rebuilding, cruises, marina, hotels, clinics, farming, technology, and more. All this, we can plan for it in this space, in this vital living space, which is an arc around, centered around the world city the jewel in the crown, the walled city. And these arrows, I'm sure I don't need to explain what they symbolize. What is all this for? What is this greater Famagusta for? It can become a bridge to the Middle East, which is a historic and ancient role that it always held. A trading outpost, if you like, for linkages between the East and the West, nowadays between Europe and the Middle East. And this is an ideal road for a multicultural Famagusta, which has successfully, through cooperation, through peace, peace building, has managed to integrate itself and to lift itself up from its current situation into something much more alive and vibrant. To turn this vision into reality, it's not enough just to have the private dynamism and initiative. It's such a challenge. It will need special legislation, there will uh, be a need for appropriate incentives and especially 
uh, strengthened local government. Imagine trying to put 6,000 building permits through the existing bureaucracy. We have gridlock for 10 years. So all this needs whatever is a potential roadblock to getting to this state that we're envisioning needs to be thought of in advance and planned for in advance and encoded into special legislation. Now, that was the end of the vision, and I have just a couple more slides to show you uh, how this vision was an input to the Famagusta Ecocity Project uh, teams of young graduate students. So we had the five design teams comprising Greek Cypriot, Turkish Cypriot, and American students, uh, guided by Professor John Wampler of MIT, uh, who is an expert on sustainable cities. These five teams participated in the nine town hall meetings and heard from architects, from economists, engineers, etc. And then they started working on their ideas. Each idea will be presented in two months' time to town hall meetings of Famagustians back in Cyprus with a view to inspiring dialogue, uh, provoking criticism, if you like, of these plans, an exchange of ideas, and above all, an engagement of the citizens of Famagusta in the decisions that they would have to take in the near future. And I want to close with this. Um, this is a very hopeful sign of progress that we made. Um, this, uh, in the picture, is the mayors of Famagusta, Alexis Galanos, the Greek Cypriot mayor, and Oktay Kayalp, the Turkish Cypriot mayor. They signed a joint statement on the 10th of December of last year. And in it, they said that they will implement this approach in practice by bringing the local authorities and technical experts together to carry out studies on the future development, physical and socioeconomic planning of Famagusta's hinterland and create a Famagusta metropolis. So, drink to that, and I welcome you today. Thank you very much for that. Our next speaker is um, Simeon Mansis, who is an economist and a member of the Famagusta Initiative, and will be speaking on the economic significance of Famagusta. Good afternoon. Uh, thank you very much for the organizers and for the invitation to be here. It's nice to be here after 47 years again. <laughs> it's been a long time <laughs> to return, but... Uh, it's very welcome. Um, my uh, subject will be to look a little bit at the economic significance uh, of uh, Famagusta. Uh, I will give you a little bit of a historical uh, review, some facts about Cyprus in general, because I want to point one particular interesting uh, statistics, and then uh, look at what happened in Famagusta between 60 and 73 and what happened to Cyprus between 60 and 73. How, uh, how can we describe Famagusta today and what shape do we envisage uh, the future of Famagusta? Is it going to be a cost or is it going to be an investment in rebuilding uh, uh, Famagusta? Let me start with some basic facts. Cyprus is a small island. 9,251 square kilometers, 3,520 miles, the third smallest country of the European Union. Uh, the only other smaller ones are Malta and Luxembourg. Small in population, 1960, at the time of independence, 573,000. In 2006, the Turkish Cypriots ran their own census. It was 265,100 de facto population. 
In 2011, uh, the Cyprus government ran its own census and it shows, uh, showed 840,400. So the estimated population now of Cyprus is 1.1 million uh, for 2011. I don't have uh, latest figures. There has been a very uh, rapid increase of population in the latest years, mostly because of immigration. In actual fact, if you look uh, to the north, the migrants, the students, and Turkish nationals, they are about half of the population, 50%. And this is uh, data that uh, has been uh, shown in a study by Mete uh, Hatay, uh, who uh, estimated the Turkish Cypriot population. In the south, uh, the migrants are 2,200. Uh, 324.1 percentage. So together, what we see is that the two main communities of Cyprus now represent only 69% of the population. Okay, 31% is non-Cypriot. So an important change. <coughs> if you look at the distribution between the two main communities, it is interesting. It is almost the same as it was in 1960. Uh, about uh, 80% uh, to 18%. So that hasn't changed, but the structure of the demographic uh, profile of Cyprus has changed tremendously. Now, in this small world, the microcosm of Famagusta, 35,000 uh, 35, in 1960. It grew rapidly between 1946 and 1960. It was the fastest growing area of Cyprus because of the presence of the military, because of the port, and uh, because of the citrus groves. Excellent beaches, but no tourism. In 1960, there were 24,000 tourists in Cyprus, mostly going to the mountains. There was no uh, tourist capacity in uh, Famagusta. Between 1960 and 73, Cyprus grew very rapidly. It registered a 7.2 annual rate of growth, uh, therefore expansion, uh, high investments in infrastructure, significant restructuring of productive uh, capacity, fast rising incomes, standard of living, tourism takes off. It is the fastest growing sector of the Cyprus economy between 60 and 73. 10.2% annually. There are other sectors that are also growing. Uh, you can see some of the figures. The significant figure is at the bottom there, that Famagusta in 1961, because I didn't have the figures for 60, had 10.6% uh, of hotel capacity in 1974, because they, they said the figures of 74, it had 54% of tourist capacity. Therefore, the main tourist uh, sector, the, the main tourist uh, center of Cyprus. Economic growth had profound effects on Famagusta. Growth of foreign trade passing through Famagusta port because it was the only port of, Fam of Cyprus at that time, it was Famagusta. Uh, tourist growth transforming Famagusta into the main uh, tourist destination. <coughs> Rich and accessible hinterland very interesting aspect about Famagusta in the 1970s was that uh, 
it, was, uh, it had a rich hinterland, uh, which provided, so there was no urbanization. It was the, uh, the district that had the less urbanization during that period. Out of 26 villages in Cyprus at that time, which had over 2,000 population, 13 of them were in Famagusta. They were the providers of food and labor to the main town of, uh, of Famagusta, and therefore the, uh, to the economy of Famagusta was fairly well-structured, not over-dependent on, and you can see there was no urbanization in Famagusta. In 1973, it had only 39,000 people, 32,000 Greek Cypriots, 7,000 Turkish Cypriots, 6.2% of the population, in 1960, it was 6.1 of the total population. So, therefore, five factors determine the development of Famagusta, the presence of the deep water port, the long sandy beaches. Okay, this is the stretch of sandy beach in Famagusta, six kilometers of it, pure sandy. Only half of that was developed in 1960 as far as tourists was concerned. You can see it a little bit. It's not, it doesn't show there very well. Uh, but uh, you can see uh, why Famagusta was so important. This is a wider area of Cyprus. You see the uh, beach of Famagusta, and you also see the rest of uh, Famagusta in the south, uh, which is now the main tourist center of Cyprus. It, ha it accounts for 40% of uh, the tourist uh, facilities, even though there are no straight beaches like there are in Famagusta. Okay, That's, I think it's very important. They are all uh, sort of uh, uh, rocky beaches interspersed with small uh, areas of sandy beaches in between. But it has developed into the main tourist uh, center of uh, Cyprus. Famagusta, of course, uh, the other factor was the two British military bases that affected uh, Famagusta. One is Karaulos in the north, and the other is Ayos Nikolaos uh, in the west of uh, the town. They were the drivers of originally of tourism in Famagusta, because it was the British that started the whole thing. Uh, they were demanding uh, floods, and they were uh, using uh, the beaches, which we, as Famagustians, we are using it very little, at least in the early 1960s. Now, this is the description of Famagusta in 1974. This is history. Okay. What is Famagusta now? Famagusta, from what we hear from our uh, Turkish Cypriot friends, it's a university town. It has a university of 11,000. This is the statistics that I have. Some people say now it's 15,000, but that was in 2011, uh, the published figure of the Turkish uh, Cypriots, uh, 11,000. So, and this is a de facto population. So out of 35,000 people that were registered in the 2006 uh, census of the Turkish Cypriots, 11,000 were students. They were not uh, uh, permanent residents of Famagusta. We don't have any other figures about uh, the, the Famagusta now. It is not a tourist town. Definitely it's not. Why? Because uh, the beach is uh, 
and is enclosed. It's a part of the dead city of uh, Famagusta, the ghost city. In the north, the main uh, tourist development has taken place in Kairinha, on Kairinha coast, north of Famagusta, Bogas, and Carpas Peninsula. Um, if you see, this is a closer look of Famagusta and a, a Google picture, and you can see the dark side is the enclave part of Famagusta. Okay? The white side is the one that is inhabited now. The dark side, which is shown with the red, two red arrows, is uh, the enclave part of Famagusta. It is a really dark on the north because it's still now a military camp. Um, so, a big question. Is uh, the ghost town of Famagusta completely empty? Alan Weissman, in his book, The World Without Us, includes a chapter on abandoned Famagusta. Cosme Tim Munir, first journalist allowed to Famagusta in 1980, was struck him most, uh, wasn't the absence of life, but its vibrant presence. With the humans who built Varosha gone, nature was intently recouping. An example of what happened in Famagusta is this one. Nature is taking over uh, from uh, the, again, a lot of trees in the uh, enclave part, and this is uh, the fence surrounding uh, Famagusta. Are there human beings in Famagusta? The answer is yes, and it's the Turkish army. There is the presence of the Turkish army in Famagusta. Uh, you, again, through aerial photography of uh, Google, you can see that this is Kennedy Avenue, uh, this is the Sandy Beach and the Asterias hotels, and they are being used by the Turkish army. They are the tourists now of Famagusta. Um, and they are even doing investments there. You can see that there are some brakes, uh, uh, yeah. uh, wave breakers. Uh, then, a more recent picture, it shows that they took them away and now the beach has expanded a little bit and they have more uh, facilities on the beach and a closer look of the two uh, hotels. There is a third hotel that is being used also and this is in the south. You can see it here, uh, the area of the Asterias Hotel is the one at the top in the middle is the Golden Sand area, uh, the biggest hotel that we had in Famagusta in 1973, and then the one that they used, the Turkish army, is on the south. Uh, so, what of the future of Famagusta? Basic vision of bicommunal Famagusta initiative, a new start for a modern, well-functioning city, attractive to young, dynamic entrepreneurs. Famagusta to reopen immediately, if possible to be used jointly by Greek Cypriot owners and Turkish Cypriot inhabitants. To become a vibrant tourist economic hub could attract 80 to 100,000 people to live around the, the area. Could boost economic potential for Cyprus. The six kilometer sandy beach, well, I call it the most valuable real estate piece in Cyprus. Okay, there isn't anything else 
There is one only equivalent, and that is in the north. It's at the edge of the Carpas Peninsula. It's the Bahia area. That is four kilometers long. Not as much as no other area in, in Cyprus has. Okay, so what are the factors that eventually could determine what's going to happen uh, with uh, Famagusta? Okay, the rich sandy beaches, and therefore a tourist uh, center, and hopefully the enterprising spirit of both the old inhabitants and the new inhabitants. Things that would not be the same as they used to be in the past. Okay, the changing expectation. We now live in a much more modern world, technologically developed, and therefore we expect things to be much different in a modern uh, Famagusta. We want the world city to be declared uh, into a UNESCO World Heritage Monument that, uh, together with a much wider uh, cultural uh, upgrading to include Famagusta, to include uh, world city, to include Salamis, Engomi, and Apostolos uh, Varnavas. Uh, we envisage that the port will be abandoned. Pavagusta used to be the only deep water port of Cyprus. Now it's Limassol. We know that it is not competitive. It cannot compete with Limassol. And therefore, not only that, but it cannot live next to a World Heritage Monument. Therefore, uh, we cannot uh, have large grains uh, next to a World Heritage Monument. And therefore, if, we, if that is our dream, then we cannot have a modern port. We want to trans, uh, translate it into a marina and maybe move the port next uh, to, to the north because of the demands by the Turkish Cypriots. Certainly, the university is the new factor that we can build upon that and we can combine it with the rest of the economic activity of the town and uh, they can both complement and it can become a center of knowledge. We are thinking in terms of Horizon 2020 of the European Union and for Augusta could serve with that particular uh, horizon. So, lastly, the Famagusta, a bridge between the EU, Turkey, and the Middle East. All this means a, a different future for Famagusta, and hopefully uh, we can realize. Now, what about the costs? There have been three estimates of what would be the cost of rebuilding Famagusta. They are what I can call very conservative estimates. They have been done by the Planning Bureau in, 19, in 2004, just before uh, the referendum, by the Reconstruction uh, Council later, and by the study the day after, by three, uh, uh, two Cypriot, one Greek Cypriot, one Turkish Cypriot, and uh, uh, Fiona Mullen. So they both show an estimate of about two billion. But that's very, very underestimated of what we consider to be a total cost. Uh, and the reason is, if we want to make Famagusta a really forward-looking, uh, is that uh, we need a lot of investments in, uh, in areas like the marina, for instance, the maintenance of the medieval walled city, enhance sand areas, expand uh, them and build pedestrian 
provide additional hotel capacity because all the studies were only about the enclaved part of Famagusta, not of the wider Famagusta area. And we will need to do a lot of infrastructure, pedestrian facilities, new motorways uh, from Nicosia and Larnaca to Famagusta. And these are some examples of the ambitious investments that we think. So we think that this is not a cost, this is investment. Eventually, it will produce wealth which can be uh, the, the make it easy for us to eventually repay whatever it will uh, cost to rebuild. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. I would like, of course, to uh, congratulate the organizers and thank the people who brought me here. I hope they will not regret it, but uh, th this is for up to your judgment later on. Um, I would like to stress from the beginning that uh, I'm not here as an advocate of a particular line of argument or a particular communal point of view. I'm here to talk as a spatial planner, and as you, have, as you can very clearly see on the screen, uh, my theme is Reviving Famagusta City Planning Challenges, and there are many. Um, you don't need me to tell you that division has consequences. It's not a very um, docile situation. It's a dynamic uh, condition. But I would, uh, I would very readily say that the recurrent activities and proposals by the Greek Cypriot lobby has indeed generated a lot of awareness uh, of the plight of Famagusta and the bitterness of the Famagusta population who have been displaced from their homes way back in 74. Uh, equally, uh, I would uh, readily also stress that um, the rather sharp focus on property, human rights, have done what I have said, that it contributed to awareness, but they have disguised a number of very important spatial planning issues which are crucial to the kind of change that we want to deliver in Famagusta. So obviously, talking about uh, the planning challenges, we, we certainly need to produce a planning approach because it's a very uh, particular planning context we're talking about. And that planning obviously um, would have to undertake and fulfill and deliver a dual role here um, to play the more conventional, if you like, uh, spatial planning um, role of delivering a set of socio-technical and economic uh, designs for the future, but also as an instrument of continuous dialogue and uh, it would have to go on and stimulate continuous dialogue because we're talking about stitching a city together. And uh, incidentally, I would draw everybody's attention to the work of Patsy Healy and Yvonne Rydin. They both worked on what we call in, um, in planning uh, collaborative planning. And this really, this is the kind of model that 
um, actually is needed here. We could talk about what collaborative planning is later on. So there are two overarching uh, challenges uh, in connection with um, uh, the planning issues here. One is planning change. And the question really here is which objectives are we having in mind? Uh, they certainly don't come out of a, of a first-year textbook because it's a particular situation in Famagusta. And, of course, the second one is delivering change. What are the mechanisms? What are the institutions that we have to put in place? It's not like planning Peterborough or Liverpool where the, the paraphernalia is there. In Famagusta, we have to produce them. So these two main important um, challenges, uh, I, will, I will attempt to explain and uh, present them to you and share them with you under five main points. One is we're talking really about a post-conflict divided city. Uh, everybody has been really having this at the back of one's mind. We all know that Famagusta is a post-conflict torn city. And the epithets like uh, dead city, ghost city, make reference to that subtly, but this has to be discussed and brought to the forefront. What are the issues? There are, of course, opportunities and constraints for the future that George and Simon have already alluded to. Uh, we certainly have to put together a planning approach, which, as I said earlier, cannot come out of a textbook. It has to be developed from the, from the ground up. A lot of thinking has got to go into that and put it all together. Uh, the, 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 the greatest issue of all is the problem of delivery, deciding what needs to be done. I think George Lordos spoke very eloquently on that. But what are the institutions and the channels of delivery? That's a tricky issue for planners. Finally, I would have a, a comment to make about eco-cities, but I would like to leave that at the end. As I said earlier, um, for at least, for the, the sociologists at least, division and post-conflict is not a static situation, it's a dynamic situation in the sense that uh, division produces adjustments and the adjustment we have seen now in Famagusta, it's the development in the northern part towards Caragol, towards Tuzla, towards um, um, other parts in the north which were unknown previously. So there are spatial adjustments following division, and there are also, further down the line, there are social responses. The entire Cypriot society has responded to this. And the response has been that, uh, in terms of imagining old Famagusta, yearning for old Famagusta, desiring old Famagusta, and all these, of course, are major challenges for the planners, which are very difficult to uh, overcome. So which we have to be a bit creative about the objectives that any planning effort would have to, to pursue. Um, reviving a dead city can mean a number of things. It's not a straightforward um, objective. Certainly the return of the population and the fixing of infrastructure and housing, it goes without saying, um, are very important objectives. They are necessary conditions for 
revival, but certainly not sufficient to revive a city. Um, bringing Famagusta back together again, like Humpty Dumpty, uh, it's certainly a desirable objective. Don't get me wrong. I'm just identifying more and highlighting the, the challenges rather than the opportunities. But it's, um, there are also a few constraints that the planners would have to, to struggle with. When I spoke earlier about adjustments, this is one adjustment. Um, you can see here, you can see here the enclosed area of Barosha. This is what Simon showed earlier, totally dark when you look at it from the Google. But the area north of that has been, this is apparently a land use map of the northern part of Famagusta, the reaction, if you like, which has um, sprawled north and northwest uh, towards Tuzla and towards, towards Salami. So, again, the planets would have to take that into account. There's a very important sociological issue that I would like to digress into. It's the, what the sociologists uh, call the question of meaning. When the Famagustan people will return to Varosha, Marash, they will bring with them a reality which has been constructed all these years in response to the division. That's why I said that division is a dynamic situation. The reason I mention this is because um, the kinds of realities that people have been constructing all these years about Famagusta since 74 will have an important influence on a number of key issues that George and Simon have alluded to earlier. For example, People talk about the reconstruction of Varosha. Of course, it's uh, a necessary step towards reviving. But are we talking about reconstruction or are we talking about renovation? I've heard both points of view. I have interviewed many people from, from Augusta, and some say the area is dilapidated, the infrastructure has gone bad, you cannot recycle the buildings there because the, uh, the piping and all the all the uh, technical infrastructure is not much use. But some other people say, this is how we would like Famagusta to remain. We would like to revisit that area as city in the mind. There is a city in, in the mind and the city on the ground. So we have to discuss this a little bit. The discussion that has gone on for years about Famagusta has not included that on the cards. It wasn't on the debate. So it has to be done. Um, retaining existing buildings is one option, but then coming up with a fresh urban design concept, like George Lordos mentioned, it's another attractive option. How do we choose between these two? Uh, we, have to, we have to actually discuss this a little bit, not necessarily now, but at some point in the future. Living together in a new city, Question mark. Some people would like to do this. Some people would like to choose the other option of living apart. But I would say that living apart, it may be tolerable, but they have to learn from one another through collaboration. That's why the idea of collaborative planning is very important. So the objective which I would propose and put forward for, for Famagusta is really reviving. Famagusta is one city, no doubt about it, but it has to be combined with a, 
an imaginative governance mechanism in place which would make diversity an important part of that uh, governance system. Diversity is a, a selling point. Diversity is what makes cities rich. There is no single city in the world that is united or unified. All cities are diverse culturally, economically, socially, poor, rich, you know. So diversity is a very important recipe to follow for Famagusta, it seems to me at least. And uh, the contention which I would put forward is that spatial planning, despite many challenges, can and will contribute to the uh, development of this particular planning culture and planning context. So it's obvious that uh, I hold to the opinion that Famagusta um, needs a master plan. But the question again is what kind of a master plan? It needs to be a planning process rather than a blueprint. Don't think of final documents which give you end results. Think of a dynamic ongoing dialogue between people who want to be together and create together. And this is an ongoing and this is the modern approach to planning. Planning is no longer land use planning of the 50s. It's a process which, has, which builds up attitudes and uh, desires and abilities and capacities for cooperation. Ah, fine, okay. So Famagusta being um, part of Cyprus, which is currently unfortunately divided, the planners don't get much assistance from higher level documents, what we would call national documents. Uh, the Turkish Cypriot colleagues and Laik will talk about this in a minute. Um, shows what the planning proposals and the opportunities are in the northern part. And you can see that Famagusta is being there at the corner. No city can realize the potential that George and Simon mentioned earlier if you are stuck in the corner. Right. Here is what, what we have uh, in the south. It's called the island plan, which was prepared way back in the late 60s, which was an attempt to put together a strategy, a physical strategy, uh, for the whole island, which would identify the role of each city and the main infrastructure and how it will all link up together. But this is grossly out of date. So we need a new island plan. So really, the planners there have to innovate. Again, this is the plan of Hamagusta of the early 70s. Um, with all the respect of the people who have worked on this, it's useless. Why? It's useless because it was based on the Buchanan environmental areas concept, which was then in currency, but uh, it's been pre prepared by the experts top-down. There was no dialogue, no discussion, no uh, evaluation of op opportunities, of options. It was done there. Simply a map with colors identifying housing, industry, commerce, blah, 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 and a few lines showing the road network. Big deal, I would say. So this is a bad example. A possible alternative, which I think is, uh, we have to start off with, is if you like a model like this which would identify the main drivers. And although we have talked about the port and the and education and tourism, this is how I would visualize the starting point of such a, an effort. These are what I would call the drivers of, 
of change, to conceptualize the whole of Famagusta and see what are the comparative advantages and what are the merits and what are the resources which would drive change forward. I tried to ground this on a map just to show that it's not just a fantasy, but this is again how it can be at, at a certain level of abstraction. Um, tourism, obviously, uh, the area here, which is now a dead city, uh, or a ghost city to borrow from the, um, the eco-city initiative, that, has, um, that may concentrate the tourism activity. Uh, the area up here has a certain activity going on at, uh, associated with education, student housing, student consumption and spending patterns. Uh, evidently heritage the old city, a very important resource. Um, further to the south of the heritage of the, of the old, old city, we have here, there is in place, although not very, um, not, not, not ready in place because of the infrastructure dilapidation, there are all the central area facilities, which together with the heritage, symbolically, they suggest that the city could be stitched together and this would be a magnet for um, a unified city. Um, here, of course, there's a lot of potential for agriculture and manufacturing. Uh, coming back to what I, uh, Simon stimulated my further th thinking to say, heritage is very important. It pulls people together. It's an alternative to see sun, uh, see sun, sex, whatever. Um, heritage is very important. And I would have you, uh, I would say that currently, the Technical Committee on Cultural Heritage, on which I'm very proudly member of, has received the financial assistance from the European Union, which I acknowledge with great uh, enthusiasm and gratitude, to do basic restoration works on Ravelin, the Landgate, Martinengo, and the Othello Tower. So from Augusta, we have also that attraction to, to highlight. This is a, very briefly um, the, how, how I would suggest to develop a, the, the, the first steps for a master plan for Famagusta. You have here the main actors. The main actors basically, and we have the private sector, who are the driving force of development. We have here the public sector, or if the expression is controversial, non-private sector. There have to be some kind of government there. The community and civil society is also very important here. And we all have these poor devils here, the future generations, who have their rights and their options of exercising their own judgment without our own options being prejudicial upon their choices. This is okay, from a textbook. But here, there is an attempt to correspond that uh, with the with the, uh, the um, uh, elements that, that uh, comprise a living city. We have here, as George Lord said, private investment is very important. We have real estate and business development. Famagusta will, will have to pick up where it left off. It has to be developed uh, under the initiative and the success of the private sector, who will risk their capital and their initiative. And this is how urban design can guide that. 
Um, the public sector, we have to look at uh, public sector investment, infrastructure, and governance. Here, it's very important to do engagement, mobilization, but also the community is what creates markets for the to use and consume the, with the output of the private sector up there. If there is no community there, the, the output of uh, the investment will not, be, will not be taken up. But okay, this is a kind of a catalog. The question is, what are the planning issues? Now, the planning issues is that uh, to, have, to encourage price, private sector articulation and investment, we need an enabling planning framework. For the public sector, we need uh, a funding strategy because 2.5 billion will not come from a helicopter. Uh, we need a capital investment program to articulate that. For the community, we need active stakeholders and an engagement process. And this is very important, the environmental aspect, the, the environmental quality, the environmental options for the future. And here we need very strong controls. And that's why, instead of talking about myself, eco-cities, we talk about sustainable development, as it's been defined by UN Habitat, by the European Union, by a number of other institutions. Okay, this is the, the planning issue. But what about the institutional issues and the organizational, the, the instruments which will deliver the output? Here I come down with a proposal, which of course it's, uh, it's arguable, controversial, but it's up to us to discuss it. Famagusta will need a development company, like the one that has been tried in Liverpool, in Sheffield, in uh, Manchester. Um, I acknowledge there's a different context, but who is going to take over the coordination of all this effort? Who is going to do the funding? Who is going to do the budgeting? Who is going to do, to do the planning teams and the technical teams and the, and the uh, publicity and, uh, um, and the visioning? So I think it's, we need a development company there for Famagusta. The, that particular development company will have a very long menu of tasks to do. Uh, it will coordinate the effort, it will um, liaise with the stakeholders, it will undertake financial feasibility studies, will we'll do a number of things that you can see on the screen. I can see James looking at me, right. Finally, I would say that there are homegrown examples, and the example of the master plan, I cannot uh, really talk enough about this, but Laik will take over from next, and she'll talk much more about this. This is an example. This is the buffer zone here, dividing Nicosia. This is the southern part of Nicosia. This is the northern part of Nicosia. A project has been able to produce this quietly and confidently, and it has been a success. There are also limitations. And these are the joint projects that uh, this team has been able to put together and deliver some very important uh, results. But there are also limitations and problems. So the planners are very fortunate to be able to face the challenge of planning for the future of Famagusta, not as a kind of a technical exercise, but as a continuous dialogue to deliver the kind of change that is desirable. Now, what kind of change is not for me to say. I have a very clear idea as to what can be done and what should be done, 
but um, I think it will come as a result of collaboration and what I call collaborative planning. Read Patsihili. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, boss. Unfortunately, it is just simply because of uh, um, you know, pressure of time um, and, and wanting to make sure that we do actually have a chance to have some discussion at the end of this. Um, the next speaker is Blythe Podchamp-Mesutoglu, who is a town planner, and she will be talking on the subject of from separation Um, good afternoon. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank you to LSC to organize such a thing and giving me opportunity to just address you people here. It's privileged to be in a, such a, uh, a high academic institution and um, uh, share our um, opinions here. Well, this conference is not about when Varosha is going to open, it's a, it's a rather technical discussion how the, the future of Famagusta will be shaped um, uh, and integrated together with the uh, Varosha and rest of the area, greater area. Um, my colleagues have talked about a lot of things. I think there's nothing left for me to say. But <laughs> and uh, they all uh, share the common thing, and I'm, what I am going to say is mostly is uh, mostly what they have said. Um, I'm, I hope you will find something different that they have said. Okay. Well. Um, at the fifty-first year of. Uh, failed of Greco-Turkish State of Republic of Cyprus and the fourth year after the Varasheri was uh, fenced. Uh, being here to dream an integrated city is a very motivating um, uh, um, event, I guess. And, and coinciding this conference with the, this consent, con, uh, contested city with the new uh, initiative for uh, negotiation process is also another motivation. Well, the opening of ghost town of Famagusta, Varosha, um, the island's sleeping beauty, is an opportunity to pave the way towards an economical and social integrated city, a model for reconciliation and peace building with an international role in the region. Well, personally, I have uh, attachment with the town because I grew up there. So whenever there is a um, study that has a pr uh, promise for change, I really jump on, jump on it. And that's why I'm here. Um, in my presentation, I will try to just uh, have a look at a broader uh, and um, from macro level approach, and my colleague uh, Glavkos have tried to underline that there is a need for island plan. So when we talk about Varosha, instead of talking about the details of the Famagusta, 
and how the water share will be integrated into the Famagusta. First, we have to talk about what will be the, the role of Famagusta in the context of entire island and the role of Famagusta in, in the context of Mediterranean region and in the European Union. So as you can see, Famagusta is one of the key cities of the entire island. And with having some compared it with the key um, major cities of the, the, the island, you will see that Famagusta is the um, fourth or fifth largest city in the entire island. And currently it is an education commercial um, uh, service center. Um, well, when we first start talking about Famagusta, I think it's good to start about talk about divided city. And divided city is not only about physical partition, and it's not about uh, only post-conflict partition. There are many other types of uh, divisions and uh, that planners have to take into account when they're planning the cities, like economic isolations, social exclusion, and social segregation. And uh, in two cities of Fama, uh, Cyprus, Famagusta and Nicosia, there are two cities that is uh, physically partitioned, and it will always be shared cities, but we have to be very careful not to create uh, such a cities, even if we have unified it, um, uh, make sure that we will have social cohesion and economic integration. Um, well, we have a case study that my colleague have shown you that Nicosia Master Plan was one of the, the pioneering uh, projects in Cyprus, which was actually initiated by early uh, 70s by two visionary mayors, Lelos Dimitriades and Mustafa Akinci. Um It was a privilege for the Cypriot planners to work together. It helped us to develop different culture, culture of cooperation. Uh, the, the Nicosia Master Plan uh, is basically based on how the city will be unified in, in spatially. There's nothing about how the city will be integrated socially and economically. So I think we have to learn something from this um, example when we think about uh, Famagusta. Um, well, uh, I also want to uh, use this opportunity to share, uh, underline one more thing. Um, since we are uh, the Cyprus issues and at the negotiation table now, and we are hoping that uh, reach a solution soon, um, there was nothing in Anam plan about this share, how the shared cities or shared capital of Cyprus, United Cyprus, uh, will be administered, how the urban development will be managed. So there's a new opportunity now. A new, gener a new negotiation process offers us a, an opportunity to raise this issue of administration, sustainable development of shared cities or United States of uh, Cyprus. So my question is, could Famagusta, together with Varosha and capital city of Nicosia, be shared an integrated federal city 
similar to Belgium model, could two cities be laboratory for peace and reconciliation? And Famagusta. I'm not going to talk about his story, and my friends have talked about a lot. And you, you can learn uh, many things about the rich historical background of the, the city. Well, let us uh, just have a glance to the population. Uh, when we talk about Famagusta, it's not about the limited boundary on the Varosha and the Wall City and Karakol and Sakara. It's a greater and wider area that covers uh, Salamis, and maybe we should also consider Derinya and the Paralimnian, even Ainapa. And George tried to just uh, bring this to you, your attention. The population of the municipal of Famagusta is about 40,000 based on the 2011 census in north. And the greater Famagusta in the north, uh, including uh, Iskele Tricoma area, which is uh, uh, within the hinterland of Famagusta, is about 45,000. And the Famagusta district is about uh, 69,000. And when, you when we just have a look to the southern part of the area, we see the Ainapa area is 24,000, and the uh, Famagusta district in the south is about 46,000. And we have done some estimation. It's quite similar to what Simeon has said. We, expect, we can expect that, we can assume that the, the population in future in 20 years' time could be around 90,000 or 80,000 or uh, 100,000. Um, I will not go into details of the, the pieces of the city. Uh, so let's see the comparison of the economy. Uh, Famagusta used to be an uh, uh, important economic hub in the region before 1974. After 1974, the economy had declined. And um, it was a main tourism destination. After 74, tourism went down due to reason that city have lost uh, connection with the sea. And uh, also some other parts became most uh, um, uh, better destination for the tourism uh, activities. Uh, port was uh, one of the important ports in the Mediterranean area. Because due to the economic isolations, have lost their importance. And until the university was opened uh, uh, after 74, city was really fast suffering from economic problems. And uh, university have brought in a very important dynami dynami dynamism to the city. And currently, um, it enjoys uh, industry based on tourism, not, not, not tourism. Um, services and education, and we have there's a one free zone port, free port, which is also one of the economic activities in the city. Um, when we look to the tourism in Famagusta, there is a sleeping nearly 10,000 bed capacity there in the north of the Famagusta. There's 204,000 for 400. Um, bed capacity, 
And when we look to the southern part that includes Ainapa, it's nearly um, 53,000 beds. So imagine the total beds that will, uh, can be considered in future. future. Of course, city expanded after 74 in the north towards north, jumping over uh, Salamis uh, archaeological site. And this map is uh, from the, the Korean coverage map from the Eurostat, Euro Environment Agents. And it shows, the reds are showing how the city expanded towards north and towards south. So this is a challenge to just manage the urban sprawl in the area. So, um, with 40,000 population, two universities, walled city, and the segregated life, um, with uh, rural, intellectual, and urban, uh, urban uh, population of uh, the Famagustians, and city expanding towards the beyond uh, beyond the, the limits of the city, and the ignorance of Varosha town, uh, with a lot of uh, potential sleeping there, is the challenge in front of us to to decide on the future future development of the city. Um, well, of course. Um, dreaming uh, for integrated city of Famagusta goes back to the 90s in the uh, northern part of Cyprus. First visioning and policy planning for future of Famagusta was initiated in 1996 to, uh, in cooperation with the town planning department and the Famagusta municipality. And in 1998 uh, well, and 99. Uh, we have done a series of symposiums together in cooperation with municipality, town planning department, and the Eastern Military University, and um, searching for the future of Famagusta. And uh, two recent uh, activities are, uh, George have mentioned, uh, one of them, the 2007 Famagusta Revival Project that was actually funded by and supported by UNDP. And the recent uh, initiative is for uh, EcoCity project. Uh, another project is ongoing project is uh, since 2010 is the spatial plan for Northern Cyprus. Draft objectives of the plan uh, will be strategic framework for the spatial development for entire North, an opportunity for description of the terms of reference for the future of Famagusta. Of course, have tried to just show you something, and this is the, uh, the main overall strategy, spatial strategy for the north. You are you, you can see three um, poles there. Um, Kairinia and Nicosia is actually sucking all the uh, economic uh, opportunities and the, the the employment opportunities and the service opportunities. So. In order to have a sustainable development, we need to balance the, the development entire region. So we need to put some other weight on the different parts of the north um, to somehow uh, boost, uh, encourage the development in that other pole. And uh, in the plan, considers Famagusta uh, as a future growth, growth pole, uh, balancing Nicosia and Kyrenia.
and considers uh, Famagusta and Iskele as one region to be considered under uh, uh, in detail. So it is very obvious that the current status is not sustainable. And then uh, we need to bring a sustainable, livable um, city based on the uh, different criteria. World is changing. New dynamics, challenges, opportunities are in the region. The natural gas, the water from Turkey, oil, and even the economic crisis that we are living is an opportunity for Cyprus. And Cyprus have to change. Famagusta have to change. And um, we need to have a new, new venture. Um, then what could be the ideal model for Famagusta City? Varosha is one of the main factors that will have a role um, shaping the future of Famagusta. Future role of the city, future driving economic sector or sectors, future status on the use of walled city, and the job and employment opportunities, the tourism bed capacity, the housing needs, use of uh, coastal area, um, water demand, transportation, mobility, water, waste, and energy infrastructure, social services uh, needs, and education, such as education, health, uh, and recreation, all are directly associated with the future status of Varasha. Without um, considering Varasha, we cannot talk about future ideal model for the city. Future of Varasha is uncertain. The future of Varasha at the end of long-lasting negotiation for peace settlement is not so well known. There are various scenarios. What can be done now for Famagusta before anyone who will decide when and how the city will be open? We have to think about how the, the city will be shaped when uh, a peace settlement will be achieved. Um, need broader approach from Augusta beyond its border need to be taken into account. How could the future of Famagusta be shaped with two universities, Wall City, Harbor, Varosha, Salamis, archaeological site, and special environmental protection areas, wetlands, and sandy beaches? Uh, carrying on, ignoring the fence, Varosha, considering is it a divided city or envisaging as a shared city. Search for future ideal model for integrators for Famagusta City. There are various scenarios. Actually, two scenarios based on different uh, alternatives. Uh, whether shared and integrated city or carry on as usual. And there are, we can see three visions. One actually um, generated in the 90s, late 90s. A multiple, uh, multicultural, multi-sectoral, polycentric, and uh, well-planned city. A city open for economic, social, functional, spatial integration with Varosha. And second alternative was, which is a very challenging one, a European city strengthening international role. Famagusta would be an international, international city under EU free zone, having a unique role similar to the Brussels, 
and uh, Strasbourg, a permanent seat for a EU institution representing the common culture of the European family. And Fama Gusta be the UNESCO uh, heritage. And the third vision is, comes from the, the EcoCity um, uh, project. Um, so, what will be the future role of integrated Famagusta? The role may be established in the context of the national and regional planning. Um, so I think it is time to talk about the island spatial development plan, as Kosovo underlined. And I'm not going to talk about the details of the, the status of, because I already mentioned. And uh, challenges to plan and design the future development of the city with international and profile. Planning shapes the places where people um, live and work. The, if the planners, uh, as the managers of the space, uh, what if uh, the planning approaches, decisions have effect on how the cities and uh, shapes the, um, po the the planners can shape the future positively or negatively. If positive, then the result will be good. Uh, if it is negative, then the cities become um, loses people and economy and the value. So. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm just going behind the time. Um, it's more important. Uh, the challenge is how to make this happen. Whatever the design could be, would be, it is so crucial to avoid talking about only the particular characteristics of the future city, whether the future Famagusta would be an eco-city or eco-cultural city or any other, another type of city. Adopting a proactive participatory inclusive process based on cooperation that will pave the way towards sustainable partnership. Searching ways and means ensuring the citizens of Augusta would work together to attain the shared goal and the benefit from common idea of integrated city is more important than talking about the model of integrated city. There is a need for paradigm change. We need new perspectives, dreams, knowledge, creativity and motivation in order to find new ways of develop, develop the city. New process for dialogue should be developed for Famagusta, building bridges, culture of cooperation, collaboration for urban development is a must for an agreed, workable, sustainable integration. Construction of unique model of procedures and mechanism for the mediation of the conflict among the different groups of the stakeholders and between the two communities, Turkish Cypriots and Greek Cypriots, is a prerequisite for success of any future city model. A process must such a in such a model, process must be locally owned. It, could, it should be inclusive and it should build trust. And then um, how the process is managed, how the engagement of the sites uh, carry out will be determined in large part of the success of the initiative. So I'm calling for cooperation. Cooperation is about reconciliation and reali realization of the potential. So let's join our forces and move to the work together to make one an integrated shared, to shared city out of two. Thank you for listening.
Okay, thank you. Um, I'm not sure if uh, we're holding the microphone in our hands or putting them in there. Better in there, huh? Okay. All right, so I'm going to move right away from the subject of Famagusta itself. In fact, I'm barely going to mention it. What I want to talk about today is this phenomenon of the eco-city more generally, internationally. What does the concept mean? I'm going to try and outline some of its contours. And um, <clears throat> I guess I should sort of explain, I'm part of the International Eco-Cities Initiative at the University of Westminster, and we look into um, this phenomenon of the eco-city. Um, but it's really an umbrella label for us. <clears throat> it covers a lot of very, very varied initiatives all around the world that go under all sorts of cognate names, such as the eco-metropolis, solar city, low-carbon city, etc., etc., etc. They all have two elements in common, really. The first one points to some sort of eco-ness or sustainability, environment, or some sort of forward-looking technology. The other part points to a town, city, metropolis, so they're asserting their urbanity in this respect. And this juxtaposition of eco and city is somehow tantalizing for us. And I, I want to point, uh, my, my, my talk today is really um, speaking to the, if you like, strategic question of why Famagusta should actually call itself an eco-city. You know, what is there in this, this, this label? Is, is it nothing more than a kind of fancy label? Is there something meaningful and coherent beneath that label? Or, or are there other reasons as well? If you just look empirically at what these eco-cities consist of in, in, around the world... They're characterized fundamentally by nothing else than variety. And there are certain analytical dimensions that we can use to try and make sense of this chaos. But I think, if anything, they kind of confirm that perhaps we're bunging a lot of things into the same category in a slightly arbitrary way. So we can have whole new cities which are bunged down in the desert um, in China, this one, Mazda, famously, in the Middle East. They often catch the media attention, but in fact they're only a minority of the cases around the world. More typically, we get cities and towns which are seeking to expand or reclaim, for example, old industrial land, infills and expansions. Or we might take the approach that we want to, rather than build something new, to retrofit our existing building stock. That might take the form of refitting buildings to be more energy efficient, introducing cycle lanes, district heating systems, reclaiming public spaces, education schemes, all sorts of stuff. So are we, think, are we thinking of three different things here and calling them all an eco-city? Likewise, scale-wise, initiatives range from international frameworks this one's by the World Bank, eco-squared cities, through to national policies and competitions, incentive schemes. China, every year, the two separate ministries in China run a competition for local authorities to gain the title of eco-city. Interestingly, each one of them uses a different definition of the eco-city, and these change over time. Individual cities can decide to go it alone, whether or not their national governments are supporting this type of thing, and often in spite of it. And then we can have just individual neighbourhoods or parts of neighbourhoods which try and adopt these kind of eco-city principles or whatever principles they, they want to use and call themselves eco-cities. So again, wh where's the commonality? 
Focus-wise, um, some eco-cities are very much focused on hardware and technology. Solar panels, wind turbines, bicycle lanes, that kind of thing. Others, though, are all about social process. They're about getting communities together. They have no particular goal in mind, apart from maybe some broad principle of sustainable development, and they let the local community decide what it wants to be. That's all about building social capacity. Scope, again. By that, I mean how many kind of sectors is the plan looking at? Some eco-city type schemes focus on one sector only, the solar cities competition in India, where the government basically has chosen uh, 50 towns. And its aim is simply to include the... Did my microphone suddenly jump? Okay. The, um, the aim is simply to have 10% of energy produced from solar sources um, by 2025 in each of these towns, going right through to whole cities which are planned in every respect, from roads, infrastructure, telecoms, education, local parks. What are we talking about? Um, the status. We have fully built out eco-city-style developments, like Bedzed in London. Um, you can go and visit that. They do guided tours every month. It's generally thought of as a best practice in sustainable urban development. Um, it's only a small area of, of one suburb of London, but several hundred people live there. Right through to things like this in Siberia, which is a town which had, I think, the world's largest open-cast diamond mine. It's about a kilometre across. And they didn't know what to do with it. So they built a, these are fully worked out plans for turning it into an underground eco-city with an urban farm in and things like this. Now, this isn't actually going to be built, but it shows you almost how the eco-city very interestingly somehow fades into science fiction, utopian thinking. It provides us with an alternative way of looking at the present and the future. And I think that, that strand is very, very common in, in this whole sort of history of thinking of alternative cities generally before the eco-city. The types of actors that are involved, as we've been vaguely talking about today, um, or more precisely talking about today than I'm doing, we can have all different types of governmental agencies involved and governments at different levels, all of which have their own political agendas and are working through their own institutions and processes and policy development mechanisms and planning and all the rest of it. We have the private sector involved. We need the private sector involved, it seems in the modern world, both in terms of infrastructural companies and property developers, of course. Now, they may be entering into the, these initiatives with, with, in very in, in, in goodwill. They may have the grand planet plans for the planet, but of course they want to make a profit, so that changes the, the mix. Uh, we also have local communities, grassroots organisers, environmental NGOs who have another angle themselves. And different visionaries are involved from the history of the eco-city movement who are brought in as consultants. So all these actors acting in different combinations in different local contexts can bring out very, very, very different, different plans. And it means that they'd be implemented in very different ways as well. So what is in this name, coming back to this question? It, it just seems to be whatever you want, and you call it an eco-city. Um, not quite. There are limits to the eco-city discourse, if you want to think of it like that. I've never heard of eco-city plans where people are trying to promote the idea of great big new motorways or a return to heavy industry. Um, also, um, I mean, there have been lots of, you know, 
intervening in the urban environment to achieve social or moral or environmental even uh, benefits is nothing new. The whole history of urban planning is about that. But this is new in the sense in that it addresses a series of very contemporary agendas, particularly this growing international consensus about the idea of environmental catastrophe, which we tend to call climate change. Um, we've also got ongoing problems in many parts of the world with rapid urbanisation and a problem in, 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 on, in the global north that we don't quite know what to do with a lot of our, our old ex-industrial cities. So it's a way to rethink our urban environments. But the name itself, coming back to this, the eco-city, is very interesting. If you went back 40 years or so, I think it would have been it would have struck most people as a very odd idea, the eco-city. Back in the sort of early 1970s, what we might think of as green thinking had, was on the periphery of things. It had grown out of radical 1960s thought. It was a reaction against 20th century notions of progress and modernism, very much influenced by the 1972 Club of Rome Limits to Growth report which suggested that the planet has limited resources, and as our populations grow, we're going to hit those limits, and catastrophe will ensue. So, man was constructed in this way of thinking as a kind of parasite on the planet, and the city was the sort of epitome of his pathological sort of artifacts destroying nature. Um, the city was a site of uh, degradation, the source of pollution, very ecocentric way of thinking. The city was thought of as the opposite of nature. And there was a kind of default assumption, I think, at the time. And, you know, cities, a lot of cities were in big trouble too. New York City was going bankrupt and so on and so forth. The cities were a problem that we needed to control. And high-level UN policy kind of thought of them in the same way. Skip forward to the 1990s, big changes. Um, we suddenly start seeing the idea of sustainable development where... It wasn't just that we needed to hand on a planet to our children, which was environmentally protected, when in the meantime we'd returned back to the Stone Age and gone back to nature, but we also needed to hand on some kind of economic comfort too and to think about social equity. Um, this is a much more anthropocentric kind of discourse which fed into local authority policies. Um, cities at this stage at this point, we're on the kind of discursive stage, but not at the city centre, not at the city centre, not at the centre of the stage. Um, people say that it wasn't until about 1996 the UN Habitat Conference in Istanbul when people really started thinking about cities. In the meantime, through the 80s and 90s, um, we saw something like a renaissance in the city itself. Um, unconnected to green thinking, um, and, and not directly connected to green thinking. Um, a kind of, people started moving back into the cities. People started rediscovering the joys of urbanity, and we started seeing things like um, the urban renaissance policies in the UK. Cities also started branding themselves competitively against each other, which has been interpreted as a, a symptom of a kind of drive for competitiveness in the, the, the neoliberal economy, but could also be interpreted as a kind of pride that cities suddenly had in their newly found agency on the world stage. 
And all of a sudden, we started hearing this idea that by 2008, more than half of humanity will live in urban areas, which I can barely open a newspaper now without seeing. And it's kind of odd because nobody really usually cites the source of this information or what they mean by urban area. It's got the flavour of a kind of everyday assumption, an everyday commonsensical discursive position. So it's as if we all generally accept now that man is now an urban creature. It's a big move away from the early 70s. So cities are no longer seen as the, the, the problem only, but they're also the solution. And to bring the kind of eco-city story up to date, we did a survey a couple of years ago looking at all the different even a census of all the different eco-city initiatives we could find around the world. And we worked out the launch date of each. So you want to look at the big blue line here. Um, That's the number of eco-cities that have been launched around the world over time. Not much till about the early 90s. Um, Then it started taking off. Um, It's not really till even 2005 that the acceleration really begins. And since then, these have been springing up in all sorts of places, and all sorts of quite odd places as well. Not just in rich men's countries, but also at the bottom line shows you that in Africa and the Middle East, they're, they're starting off. I thought you might be interested to see that there are plans to build an eco-city on the outskirts of Kabul, of all places. Um, I don't know if it'll go ahead. And Lagos, which is often cited as an example of a city which is you know, particularly problematic, um, they're developing something on their, their seafront, which is being built in supposedly a very sustainable way. Now, you, in terms of criticising these, evaluating them, and that's another matter, but I just wanted to sort of suggest that this discourse of the eco-city is very pervasive. It's still got legs. However, um, I'll try to uh, speed up through the, la- the last uh, three slides I've got. Um, there are some contemporary tendencies that mark out this latest wave of eco-cities as being quite different to what came before. Um, there's a real emphasis now on the green growth agenda, which arguably um, plays down the social side of things. It emphasises environmental protection and economic development, and it's been called a sort of rich man's charter, business-as-usual charter, invented by um, northern Europeans. There's a real focus on carbon emissions and other greenhouse gases, which is not a bad thing in itself, but people have said that, okay, this this is almost fetishizing this issue of climate change, such that our attention is diverted away from the underlying structural, political and economic forces which are making us unsustainable in the first place. We see the growing involvement of multinational IT and engineering firms, which is fine. They've got the technology. They make it happen, but they're not necessarily so well-trained in social and political issues. We see the growth of a lot of hybrid public-private governance arrangements. Again, this is the way that things happen in the world nowadays, but, you know, it's a long way removed from the earlier, more radical vision of the eco-city and arguably takes a lot of the debate out of the democratic sphere. And we see ongoing... uh, distinct interurban competition, cities trying to brand themselves distinctively against each other. Uh, The the other two points to raise, this smart city, the IT city discourse, seems to be fusing with the eco-city one as well. So we see the the, the green high-tech city and so on. And resilience I won't go into because I'm conscious of the time. 
Um, so just to summarise some critical perspectives on the eco-city, the term neoliberal urban environmentalism has been coined to suggest that the eco-city movement has actually been co-opted by sort of neoliberal economic models to serve its own purposes. Uh, people accuse it of being, in many cases, a very technocratic exercise, post-political, from which the, po- the politics has been evacuated. Hodson and Marvin paint a dystopic picture of the future, of, 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 a future of environmental and social degradation with a few enclaves in the middle for the lucky few, sort of gated communities for the rich. Um, the lack of standardisation of this concept also lays it open to private developers building whatever they want and calling it an eco-city for marketing purposes, which is a problem. Um, and I, I, just to jump to the last point, I think it's quite difficult to learn from one place to another because all of these initiatives grow up in particular political, environmental, social and cultural contexts. And just because one thing works in one place, it won't necessarily work in the other. So we can't just think in terms of the technology. Um, so more optimistically, if we're going down the, kind of cri- the route of being critical of neoliberal economics, it's interesting that a lot of eco-cities work together in horizontal networks. So local authorities are working together, bypassing national governments, and they're, they're not working unilaterally. They may, they may have a lot more traction that way. Interesting counterweight to the power of multinational corporations. I think the lack of standardization on balance is good. It encourages an enormous amount of innovation in local places. There are all these experiments going on at different scales, different actors, different types, different goals, different agendas all over the place. It's a very multiple process of real-world experimentation. Also, um, this ties in with something Glavkos was saying. The problem of something like climate change, like the Cyprus problem itself... Is a, is a problem characterised very much... It's, it's actually a situation characterised by uncertainty. It's not so much that we don't know what the solution is as we, we struggle to even define the problem in a way that we can all agree on. And in those situations, you need what some people have called a precautionary response. Um, and by that, I don't mean assume the worst-case scenario. I mean in the sense adopted by Michel Callon and people, who suggest that the way to move forwards is to go in, it, it, to mix sort of expert opinion with lay people's opinion, have a, have a discussion, try something out, reflect on it, adapt your response accordingly, and move, move forward on lots of these fronts at once. So it's a very sort of reflexive and polycentric answer to a, a situation that we can't very well understand. And so, my original question, why should Farmagusta call itself an eco-city? I think there are four reasons to do that. First of all, it's a concept that still keeps us interested. It plays on that residual kind of feeling that we have that green and city doesn't quite go together. So it's interestingly oxymoronic, captures our attention. Secondly... No one can disagree that they want to live in an eco-city. Everyone wants to live in a place which is pleasant, which is economically viable, which doesn't destroy the planet. You can't disagree with that. And therefore, as a concept, it produces a very inclusive space of dialogue, which I think is very important for any kind of bicommunal development. Thirdly, the very flexibility of the concept means that by adopting it, the initiative won't be tied to any particular prescriptive set of, of, of goals. Actually, it could, it could try all sorts of things and still call it an eco-city. It's up an eco-city. And finally, there's an enormous body of best practice 
out there to draw on networks of different eco-city type initiatives, conferences um, that the, this, this, this sort of project could both contribute to and benefit from. And that's all I have to say today. There, there you are. But I think, you know, we've had five very interesting papers and it would be a shame not to be able to take a little bit of time to have a discussion. So I think we'll, we'll eat in maybe by about ten minutes um, into the coffee break if everyone please can be trusted to be back here on the dot because we've got rather a lot of papers in the next session. Um, I'll take um, some questions now. If you could be very, very brief in your questions, identify who you are. Um, gen- is a gentleman there and um, there's a microphone coming if you could just identify yourself. Uh, good afternoon. Oh, could you also uh, perhaps stand up? Thank you. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Akram, and I'm from BTCA and Southern Turkish Cypriot Association, vice chair for both organizations. Um, we've taken uh, Marash issue and Famagusta issue, and I've seen that uh, the distinguished uh, professors and uh, doctorates have all done a lot of good work on it. But I feel as a Turkish Cypriot that uh, we should at this stage try and help the negotiations that are going on at the table to bring the two sides together. At the moment, I feel that this discussion is actually going to uh, make more confrontational points rather than uh, help them. I'll make up these two confrontational points, uh, uh, which they are at the moment. One is the legal ownership of the Varosha district is still under dispute. There's a lot of Turkish Cypriots saying that this belongs to the... I appreciate all the views, but we said at the start, you know, this is not really the the place for a a political debate. We'd like to hear some comments on on what we've heard this afternoon. All these points are very, very serious. I understand that, but could we just sort of keep it to some of the specifics that we discussed, uh, you know, in in the presentations? uh, The other issue that they've actually mentioned here is that the Varosha as a whole should be under one municipality. Now, 1960 agreements state that Turkish and uh, Greek Cypriots should have two separate municipalities. But here, before a solution has actually been agreed on, they're actually stipulating only one municipality. This will be against the Turkish Cypriot interest. And there will be a lot of opposition to that That is a very good point about the cooperation that would be needed. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Gentlemen here at the front. Thank you, Mr. Uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, uh, Costas Kleantis, by the way. Uh, just a couple of factual questions. Um, first of all, uh, we have heard a lot about what uh, people would expect Varosha, Famagusta, Mohosas to be. Um, there is the emotional attachment of people to their own piece of land and to their property, and there are the planners who want to basically raise everything and start all over again. Uh, To me, this is a massive conflict. Mm. I'd like to hear uh, from the panel uh, what they have to say uh, about this. That's the first part of my question. The second part is that that what sort of development we want as far as the tourist development is concerned? Uh, Sand, sea, um, and the rest of it um, that we have heard is, is now being provided not only in other parts of Cyprus, but in other areas of the Mediterranean and beyond, very much cheaper than the Cypriot economy is able to provide it. Is that really what we want uh, to do? And thirdly, very quickly, if I may ask, how many of those uh, hotels 
um, which uh, exist on the uh, beach. And most of us would like to see uh, taken down totally because we were far too close to the sea. And um, after three o'clock in the afternoon, we couldn't get the sun. And we'd love to see them on the other side of the road. Uh, how many of those are actually um, capable of being renovated? Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, anyone else? Gentlemen. Oh, lady there, actually. Um, could we just go, lady? Just thank you. Hello, Floria Anthea, sociologist. Um, my, my question re- relates to the fact that um, the idea of a planned eco city is eminently admirable, and I share the sentiments of the picture that you're depicting. But knowing Cyprus and development in Cyprus, it doesn't fit in very well with the rest of Cyprus because, uh, in my view, Cyprus development, um, I would say on both sides of the island, has been fairly unregulated, messy, undesirable, um, not ecological at all. So it, it seems to me somewhat kind of utopian in the context of the present arrangements and state regulations in Cyprus to think of the possibility even of a famagusta that actually delivers the kind of um, vision that I also share with you. Thank you very much. Thank you. um, I'm going to take two more questions as I saw them. Gentlemen just there. Um, Demetrius just to reiterate the point, there's no way you want to re, um, repair those hotels. I reiterate, you know, they must be the other side of the road because, you know, after three o'clock, as the man said, there's no sound. The other one is you made a comment about getting the Cypriots to use buses. Well, my experience in Nicosia is that no Cypriot uses buses. It's purely immig- immigrant workers getting to work. So you'll be interested. I mean, I agree with it, but I don't know how you can persuade Cypriots to give up their cars. Okay, I'm just going to take that gentleman, and then I saw one more over there, and that, that unfortunately, has got to be it. Hi, uh, Ergin Brinji. Uh, I'm an architect. Uh, basically, f- four years ago, three years ago, we made a trip to Syria and Lebanon with my university to understand the difference between the two cities. And as you know, Lebanon, Beirut um, gone through a big civil war at the time has, and has been rebuilt, and... When we went to Beirut, the rebuilt Beirut doesn't have the character, unfortunately, as, as uh, Damascus. I don't know what happened there right now, but <laughs> when we were there, it was a completely different environment. Culture-wise, Damascus was there. You were understanding that you are in a different part of the world, but when you are in the Beirut now, it was just completely new. Even though they regenerated it successfully, it was completely new. And you don't, you wouldn't feel, you would feel like you are in any other country. Can be in anywhere apart from the nice facade. And the last question: While they are regenerating the Beirut, they did a very fast job. But as far as I know, they kind of give it to one company to manage everything, where the local people suffered a lot, as far as I understand from their concerns. So, what do you think about this regeneration thing? Can happen in that sense. Thank you. And um, the final question to the gentleman over there, just on, on my right. Thank you. My question is to Glavkos Kostanidis. Um, I like the idea of this uh, need for an island plan. I think that's very important. And the development company that you mentioned, 
Um, it was also highlighted that there's major problems even now in Cyprus regarding planning regulations and, and getting plans passed through the planning departments. Could you tell me in the future solution for our country, which is supposed to be, I don't, I don't agree with it, a bi-zonal, bi-communal federation, how do you see this being able to get through such a plan within this type of solution? Thank you very much. It was an excellent set of questions. What I'll do is I'll move down um, the line of speakers as, as they spoke and ask them to give very brief responses to, to a couple of the questions that they, they felt was most appropriate to their talk. Okay. Um, uh, emotional attachment to property and uh, uh, demolitions and raising, and, and these questions were raised. Um, this emotional attachment is uh, recognized and accepted by our vision, and uh, the answer to the short answer to that is, yes, uh, there will be visionary plans for the future, but they must be implemented gradually as uh, the building stock turns over. You have to give priority to the emotional rights of people. Second thing I want to touch on is uh, about hotels uh, and uh, the other side of the road and uh, shadow on the beach and so on. There is an answer which doesn't involve violating the property rights of everybody who has property on the beach, because they are also stakeholders. Um, and uh, the answer is that the beach can be extended. Right now, it is 30 meters width to 70 meters width. Um, there are technologies now which are friendly to the environment with uh, textile uh, bags filled with sand, which can act as underwater um, wave guides, if you like, which will cause accumulation of sand. The problem of Famagusta Bay is not erosion, it's redistribution. So if you can guide the sand to go where you want it, you can solve this problem without uh, violating the property rights of other people. Full disclosure, my family has three hotels on the side of the road inland. There's only one hotel on the beach, gentlemen. <laughs> Thank you, and I will pass on for the others. Okay. Um, my first um, answer would have to deal with the idea that we never talked about one municipality. We talk about two municipalities, that the two municipalities would be cooperating to develop from Augusta together. Therefore, that is the wrong impression to get that we have been talking about one municipality. What we hope, what is necessary, if we are going to integrate and if we are going to uh, approach the problem of the city in a unified way, then it has to be a coordinating mechanism that where the two municipalities uh, will uh, uh, make sure that the plans are on a unified basis for the whole of Famagusta. The other issue that I want to mention is, uh, uh, Mrs. Anthea, um, about uh, the ecological aspect. The ecological aspect is not the main thrust of these proposals. Our proposals is to find a way to, to cooperate in order to open up Famagusta and to revive Famagusta. We hope that we have to uh, face the issues ecologically eventually to make it an attractive city for young generations. We want the old generations to go there, but, but we also want to make sure that it's going to be an attractive proposition uh, for the young. So, it's an attachment to the whole idea, but not the main idea of what we are talking about uh, uh, for, for the future. Thank you. Okay, very briefly, I will start with the question which was hired personally at me, and I'm grateful for the question. It's, very, it's something that, like and myself, have been debating for years. 
It's an essential document, an instrument, which has got to be put together by the planners and others uh, in collaboration together. Uh, it would act as the, um, as the, uh, the overarching planning document, which would set the principles, the goals, the objectives of all the other plans which are at a lower tier of uh, spatially. It's very important, and in fact, um, there is now um, a growing awareness of the need for that. So it would have to be done by the federal, but being proactive, it would have to be done now in, in view of a, a federal uh, planning authority. This is very important. Uh, the second point I would like to mention is this. There has been a lot of talk about redevelopment, uh, recondi reconditioning, refurbishing, uh, these, the infrastructure, the densities, the plot ratios. This cannot be, I think this has hijacked the whole, the whole um, debate on Famagusta, and it's very property-oriented and very kind of self-centered. It's very important, of course, because it's the prime mover of development, but it has to be positioned within the overall approach which I suggested uh, in search of a planning framework. So it has to be done together, uh, the developers, the property owners, the future generations, the public sector, all that uh, comprehensively ha has got to be looked at in this way. Flora Anthias ha touched on a very important issue. The, if the rest of Cyprus is so untidy and uh, all the authorities are limp-wristed that they cannot uh, put some order into the physical development which goes on, then certainly you're absolutely right, but we're talking about a step change. We're talking about a paradigm shift we are, we are saying that federal Cyprus will have to be wiser, certainly, but the observation is valid and very stimulating. Uh, incrementalism will not help us. It has to be done uh, um, on a different basis. Yeah. Finally, uh, a very interesting question about Beirut. Um, Beirut, they have done it through the Hariri network, through Solidaire. They produced a piece of infrastructure which is of, of um, debatable value to the society locally. Uh, the idea is not to deliver something cold turkey being there. It, the idea is to engage stakeholders. Otherwise, it's not, it's not what we call sustainable. And finally, um, I still hold on to the uh, point that Famagusta would need um, a development company set up which would engage the two municipalities and the two mayors uh, because they have an, a colossal amount of work to do, uh, as I said, budgeting, uh, visioning, engaging of uh, stakeholders, people, neighborhoods, blah, blah, blah. So we're not talking about municipalities. Municipalities are weak in any way, in any case. Development company. Thank you. Um, I like to um, talk about island plan, yes. Um, we can prepare an island plan even if there will be two different uh, constituent states, or even today. Remember the Nicosia Master Plan was prepared right out for five years after uh, the, the 74 tragic events, and uh, when the two communities had some hostile feelings towards each other. And under the auspices of UNDP, 
and the two, two municipalities and the two town plan departments of the two, depart- two sites and antiquities department of the two sites. And we managed to, to just uh, run a process, such a process, that we learn a lot. So I think it's time to prepare such a plan, even if before uh, negotiation results with uh, any good solution or not. Because uh, the entire island deserves to have a more sustainable development, as the lady over there said, that it's mess going around in, the, in both sides of the island. And I've just got a very simple point about, firstly, the risk that it could end up being developed like the rest of Cyprus, let's say. Uh, your word was messy. Or let's, let's talk about the plans being severely compromised. Or another negative outcome would be to have a very bland development that looks like a hundred other um, you know, international modern blocks of flats all over the world. Um, another negative outcome is that nothing happens at all. Um, uh, finally, though, it could be that something wonderful would come out of it, which surprises everybody, um, what, if very creatively done. And I think the difference between those outcomes is not a matter of um, technologies. It's a matter of the way it's governed or the governance process. So I think that before thinking about specific technologies and outcomes, the, the, the first trench of thought needs to go into precisely how the process is going to be governed. That's the, that's the bedrock of it. Thank you. And George, very quickly, I know you just wanted to come back on, on the development company very, yeah. very briefly. Yes, uh, just a very brief comment that uh, we see that uh, the mission, I guess, of the urban planner is to enable and empower, and that the, then the private initiative should build on top and that on balance the risks of a development company without weigh the benefits. I mean, I'm thinking solider type risks here, uh, regardless of how you frame or specify a development company. That was just my comment. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Um, just one additional point. Um, it's important. You have to keep in mind that the present hotels cannot be rebuilt as they are. They were at the standards of the 1960s and early 1970s. So it's impossible to think that we can use the hotels as they were there. They have to be replaced with something. And that thing that we want to replace it, we certainly don't want to copy the rest of Cyprus. If we're going to copy the rest of Cyprus, it will be a failure. It will not have a future. It will be the same. Already, the rest of the tourist product of Cyprus is non-competitive. It does not attract... uh, so what we want, we want to combine it with new ideas, and we would certainly like for uh, international players to come in, not only the locals, but also the internationals, if we want to create an upmarket tourist product for Famagusta. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, see you all back in 16.